What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Coronavirus Explained. Here's your host, Ryan Gorman. Right now, the entire world is dealing with the same issue, the spread of a new coronavirus. Here in the U.S., life is rapidly changing as communities across the country work towards mitigating the spread of this infectious disease. Over the next half hour, we'll talk to a medical expert, a government response expert, and a financial expert to get you the right information that you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Our first guest is going to help us better understand the virus itself. I'm joined now by the chairman of medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida. Dr. Lahida, thank you so much for helping us better understand COVID-19. The first item I want to touch on is what a coronavirus is and what makes this particular one unique. Okay, a coronavirus. This is a fairly easy question. Coronaviruses are RNA viruses. They're very infectious. The cousins are measles and viruses that cause the common cold, which are also coronaviruses, but they're not novel coronaviruses. The ones that cause the common cold we've had around for years and years. And when your listeners get sniffles and, you know, start to cough, etc., and, and it's usually early winter or early spring, um, this is coronavirus as a rule. But the novel coronavirus, the coronavirus of 2019, is a specific mutant to which we have no immunity. We've had herd immunity from the old coronaviruses that infect us and cause the common cold. But we don't have any specific immunity to the new coronavirus. Now, these viruses are very infectious. So you breathe on somebody and you can transmit the disease. The reason you do that is because you have receptors for these viruses in your tongue, the cheeks, your nose, your lungs, and even in your heart. And so when you get loaded with virus, your immune system has got to fight this virus that it has never seen before. So there's all kinds of new immune processes that go in, which are very complicated. They go into effect to try to overcome this new infection. 
And that is primarily a coronavirus. Now, the reason it's called coronavirus is a covering of the virus, and this is extremely small um, virus, which you can only see under the electron microscope, so it's invisible to the naked eye. These viruses have projections that stick out that make them look like they have a crown, and that's why it's called the corona or crown virus. So how does it spread, and what's the life cycle like from the time of infection to when symptoms may begin to present themselves to when someone's all better? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. Now, the problem with this virus is that you can have it and not know it. Um, when someone is exposed to somebody who's definitely infected, proven infected, it takes about five days at the least to show symptoms, and the median time is 11.5 days. So we like to quarantine people for two weeks because we know that within two weeks, you're going to show signs of the infection. So that's the rule of thumb. Now, the problem with this virus, as I just said, is that you can have it and not know it. And about 80% of people that are infected with this will have something they would consider a head cold or a mildly scratchy throat, and that's it, nothing else. And then there's 20% of people who may have what we in medicine call comorbidities, that is, you either have diabetes, you're on chemotherapy, you're an alcoholic, you smoke too much, you have bad asthma, you have COPD if you're older, you have emphysema. People like that that get this virus from somebody else wind up with bad kinds of respiratory problems, lung problems. And most of the deaths that occur are from pneumonia and overwhelming lung infection. And that's why everybody has to be checked out and everybody has to be careful because we don't know who those people are that have these these glitches in their immune systems. We're talking to the chairman of medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida here on iHeartRadio. There's two other types of illnesses that a lot of people are dealing with at the moment, the flu and allergies. How can people tell them apart from COVID-19? Well, COVID-19, as, as Tony Fauci, the head of the NIH, said, is about 10 times worse than the flu. That's when you get the bad infection. You'll run a high fever, but you do that with the flu if you haven't been immunized. You'll get muscle aches and pains. You'll have nausea and perhaps vomiting, maybe some diarrhea. Uh, all of these things are similar to that which you would get when you get the flu. And it's extremely difficult to tell the difference. But the difference is we have a vaccine for the flu, and we also have a rapid test we do in the emergency room to determine whether you have the flu. We can do it on site. Most hospitals have flu swabs and flu tests that they can do, and you can get a result within an hour. Um, the allergies are very easy. You don't run a high fever with allergies. You, you have sniffles. You, you're, you know, your nose turns red. You cough up a lot of gunk. But that's not the same thing as the flu, and it certainly is not the same thing as COVID-19. You just brought up testing. Can you explain for a moment what we should know about tests for this coronavirus and why they seem to be a bit more complicated than, say, a test for the flu? Yeah, so the reason they are difficult is that the testing, because coronas are very common, the regular garden variety coronas, we have to be able to discern which one is COVID-19. There's a very complicated process which revolves around the fact that this is a DNA virus, and we do something called polymerase chain reaction on the sample. That's why regular hospitals don't have 
at this point, the capability of testing for this virus. It has to go to the state health department. And before that, it had to go to the Communicable Disease Center, better known as the CDC. You know, the PCR, which we routinely do for things like diarrheal infections, we do the PCR for tuberculosis now. This, has, this is a test that has streamlined, uh, streamlined diagnosis of infections. 30 years ago, we didn't have anything like this. We would have to culture you for TB. We would have to find out, you know, in your stool if you had organisms that caused diarrhea. Now we can do the same thing for coronavirus, but we have to be able to produce the markers, namely the RNA, ribonucleic acid, from the virus, which we can get. We have to multiply that, and then we have to create these little tests that will define and show us that you, the patient, has an antibody or uh, something that really reacts with this in, in what's called the polymerase chain reaction. The polymerase chain reaction is a little complicated to describe for your listeners, but suffice it to say that that's the reason we haven't had tests up front really quickly. We're talking to the chairman of medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida. A lot of information is floating online, suggestions for how people can keep themselves and their families better protected. What are some practices or products that we know actually work? Hand washing with soap works. Purell or hand sanitizers work if you can get a hold of some. We have them on the walls here. I have a bottle right on my desk in front of me here. I have several bottles at home, and I wipe my hands down. And I also get those, you know, those wipes we use in the gym yes. to wipe things right. down, like gym stuff. If you're going to a gym and you're working out with a lot of other people, you want to really wipe the machines down. You should be doing that anyhow. But now you really should do that. If you go to the theater, you should wipe the chair down before you sit down and watch a movie. And most people aren't going to go to theaters and movie theaters and sit with 200 people today, nor are they going to go to Broadway shows and do the same thing or flying an airplane. Uh, you got to wipe, you should have done this before Corona. You got to wipe the seat down. You got to wipe the tray table down and make sure that things are pretty clean because these viruses can stay on surfaces for upwards of two days. And some people are saying even longer. What about face masks? Well, with my patients that have certain illnesses, I make them wear face masks. Now, the face mask they wear is the cloth face mask. The N95 face mask is the face mask that grips around your nose and is, and is seamless. You, you, you breathe through that mask, but there's no leakage of air around it. The regular cloth face mask does one thing. It protects you from touching your face. Because if you handle uh, some object that's been contaminated with the virus and you touch your face, uh, that's a problem. You'll get the infection. It'll go right up into your nares of your nose or into your mouth. And everybody touches their face. So we're saying wear a mask, a, a regular cloth mask, and it'll prevent you from touching your face. Uh, also, wash your hands as much as you can and keep the hands as sterile as possible. Now, if you are infected and you're coughing up phlegm and you're coughing up what you think may be virus, you should wear a nice N95 mask or at the least a surgical mask wherever you go. And frankly, you shouldn't go anywhere. You should stay in your house. Uh, don't go to the emergency room. Don't go to your doctor's office because you're going to contaminate everybody else that's there. If you have trouble breathing or you're running a super high fever, then you go to the emergency room or then you go to your doctor's office. Dial 911, get an ambulance and get over there or have somebody drive you. That's my advice. Is there anything else about this disease or outbreak that you think it's important we know? 
I think I think there's not much we need to know right now. There's very little known about the course it's going to take, whether it's going to fade away in the summer or whether it's going to continue into the fall. I do hope that we have a vaccine in the early fall, September, October time, so that we can all get immunized with the flu at the same time. We can get vaccinated against Corona uh, 19, COVID-19, because that was, that's the only surefire way that we're going to be able to control this infection. As you know, it's, it's devastating certain countries in Europe, like Italy and uh, countries like China, and, and it's just been devastating to all sorts of populations, especially the elderly, those elderly people who are quite ill with lung disease, or people who chain smoke, uh, probably even people who smoke pot. You've got to be understanding that your lungs are irritated, and when you have an irritated lung, it sets you up for a roaring infection with this virus because there are receptors in the lung for the virus. Chairman of Medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida. Dr. Lahida, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for helping us better understand everything we need to know about COVID-19. You're quite welcome, and thanks for having me. Next, let's turn to someone who can shed some light on the local, state, and federal response to the coronavirus outbreak. Joining me now is a former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein. Jared, thank you for joining us here on iHeartRadio. Let's start with the organizations, federal, state, and local, that are front and center in the handling of this COVID-19 response. What can you tell us about them? Sure. Well, depending upon where you live, you will have a a city or county or even town office of emergency management and public health authority. And they're really the front line of defense. They're going to be working with local physicians and other medical providers, hospitals, nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities to really understand what what they're seeing in the field in terms of patients, uh, symptomatic, where people are coming from. And then they're going to report that information up to a state department of health. And then the state emergency management or territorial emergency management agency is going to be involved. And those all ladder up to the federal emergency management agency, the Centers for Disease Control, and the Department of Health and Human Services and the National Institutes for Health. So really, everybody is in this now. The entirety of the federal government is involved with fighting this outbreak. uh, And everybody has their role to play here. So communication is clearly important. So the right information is going from uh, local communities to the state level and then eventually to the federal level, too. Yeah, that's correct. And, and you know, communicating with the public in an, in an outbreak like this is probably as, mu- as important or more important than the actual clinical care that you're giving. Because this, this outbreak is going to infect a certain number of people. But what we really need to do is make sure that we can focus medical resources on people who are most vulnerable, people who may have compromised immune systems, people who may be elderly, have other, some, some kind of medical condition going on. And the only way we can do that is if the public at large cooperates. And if you're sick and you think you might have COVID-19, you can contact your, your health care provider. But chances are, unless you have one of those other conditions, they're going to tell you to try and ride this out at home. Uh, obviously, monitoring if your fever gets too high or if you have any other kind of secondary symptoms other than, than, than what is uh, you know, generally associated with, with this virus. And so that's going to allow our public health uh, you know, resources to go to the people who need it the most. But the only way we can do that is if we are regularly, as authorities, briefing people and, and people believe that what they're being told by government is accurate and that they're getting accurate and timely information. Um, we always used to say that you want to tell people, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what we're trying to find out, and here's what we're doing about it, and here's when you will hear from us again. And kind of keep repeating that drumbeat 
over and over and over again until people can come to depend on it. If you can do it every 12 hours or every six hours or every 24 hours and make sure people have the latest and greatest information so that they can make good decisions for their families. A lot of people are hearing about emergency declarations, which can sound a little frightening, but there's a purpose to them. What actions do these declarations typically lead to? Sure. They, they, they differ from state to state and from uh, government to government. But in general, emergency declarations allow executives, either mayors or county executives or governors, to circumvent state rules. Usually they're related to overtime, to collective bargaining, to procurement. Sometimes they involve quarantine, uh, suspension of some kind of you know, normal civil liberties. But in general, what they're really used for is to be able to buy things quickly that we need without maybe going out to a 90-day bid process or maybe lifting cap on, caps on overtime for particular job titles of critical, critical uh, employees or maybe ordering people into, into work who we need to come in and, and maintain our vital, our vital infrastructure like water and sewer and electric. And so emergency declarations are a means to do that. At the federal level, an emergency declaration typically means that FEMA is, is – the president has declared a major federal disaster, and it frees up FEMA to start paying states and localities the cost of dealing with and whatever the disaster is. A lot of times you hear about it with a hurricane or a coastal storm or a tornado or even a major snowfall. If you get a few feet of snow that overwhelms local or state resources, uh, you can get a limited federal disaster declaration to help reimburse on the back end for infrastructure and for uh, you know the human capital costs of dealing with these things. We're talking to former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein, here on iHeartRadio. Lots of events are being canceled across the country. Large gatherings are being banned. What goes into those decisions? Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of consideration, um, but basically you need to figure out who's at risk what the unintended first, second, and third order consequences are of closing down any institution or series of institutions, whether it be public schools, private schools, Broadway theaters, large gatherings. Um, sure, it's a very prudent decision to, you know, close down large gathering areas, but what are you, you know, who are going to pay the people who work at those places and how are those people going to afford to feed their families if they're not getting paid? So, Really, uh, you try to take as, as much of a holistic view as you can to any kind of second and third order consequences of the decisions you make. But at the end of the day, elected leaders and their appointed staffs and teams have to make the call. That's what, that's, that's what they get paid for. And, you know, sometimes they're going to be right and sometimes they're going to be wrong, but they have to make decisions and, and you know, that's what they're there for. Uh, and, you know, that's what it is. And I'm assuming in most of these instances, there's some kind of coordination between public officials and the private sector, especially when major sports leagues decide to suspend games, which has a huge impact on the community. Yes, I think, you know, normally it's made uh, at a more local level. Um, the, For example, the head of the Madison Square Garden and the New York Knicks would be coordinating with City Hall and with the New York City Office of Emergency Management on a snowfall or a blackout or something like our coastal storm. I think what we're seeing here that's quite different is that whole leagues are just shutting down. Uh, and that's not something that I think we've ever seen, at least in my lifetime, where it's being done wholesale. 
I can tell you that in the post 9-11 world, where there was a tremendous impact on the financial sector in downtown Manhattan, lots of cities and states have made a real effort to engage the private sector at every level of emergency planning. In New York, it is a very common occurrence to have a regular conference call and update for leadership in the private sector uh, throughout the year, and especially in times of you know an active incident. I think the only difference we're seeing here is just the scale of it because it is a nationwide uh, issue at this point. Final question for you. We live in an age of memes and viral social media posts. How important is it for everyone to get their information from the right sources and really be careful with what they share? I think that's a great that's a great point and a great question. I know that there is you know a, a lot of suspicion of what people call fake news these days, but it's really important in an emergency situation to get your information from the elected and appointed leadership of your city, of your state, of the country, and not be taking it from a forward that somebody may have sent. You know, oh, this is from a friend who works at the police department. This is from a friend who's a doctor. Well. Until that person is in a position of authority where they're giving direction and they will be held to account if it's wrong, you should not be relying on that information. So I think we need to you know, utilize the, the, the Centers for Disease Control has an amazing amount of information on their website at cdc.gov. Each state has a health department, and they are all using, using their websites and having a tremendous amount of information up there for folks to, folks to put on there. And individual employers, uh, you know, large companies are all doing a really uh, good job at trying to inform their employees. And then, you know, individual smaller businesses are going to have to work with their local department of small business services or local health department in order to make sure that they have the information. Former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein. Jared, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Finally, to help us better understand what's happening with the markets and the U.S. economy, we're joined by CNBC contributor Ron Insana. Thank you for taking the time to break this down for us. First off, what sectors of the economy are getting hit the hardest so far due to the coronavirus outbreak? Well, certainly uh, travel uh, and uh, business travel, leisure travel, um, restaurants, retail, anything that is uh, really consumer-oriented is getting hit quite hard uh, amid expectations that as as various cities and states around the country declare states of emergency or, in the case of New York, shut down things like Broadway, um, where where the consumer directly has to go somewhere in order to have an experience or a meal, all of that is getting just absolutely crushed. And, and, And while we're not seeing it show up immediately in the economic data, it's going to. And so it's that and it's the fact that we're now starting to see schools close across the country, not just universities, but elementary schools and high schools. Uh, We are seeing disruptions now in in workplace habits where we're seeing split teams. We're seeing people uh, hopefully on an hourly wage will will get a backstop. But if, if they have to stop going into work, you're going to have two different kinds of shocks. You're going to have a supply shock because we have, uh, in some cases, too many goods having been made, and then a drop in demand and a demand shock, which could which could throw us pretty quickly into recession. There have been a lot of comparisons of what we're seeing right now to the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008 and the period immediately after 9-11. Is this similar or are there some significant differences that we need to understand? In many ways, what's transpired in the last three and a half weeks, four weeks, is is, is really 
a combination of, of multiple different events. In, in some ways, this resembles the crash of 87 and 1929 for its speed and ferocity. In some ways, it resembles um, what we saw at the end of 2000 and, and, and then subsequently 9-11. And in some ways, and this is not quite there yet, what happened in 2008. And, and there are different types of events. What, what we're seeing here is what we call an external shock. Uh, that's affected the global economy, starting in China, working its way across the world, and hitting us. And, and so we saw a, a drop in production of everything from auto parts to cell phones to even pharmaceuticals in China. You saw most of Asia go through severe uh, quarantines and production shutdowns. And now here at home, we're going to go through a similar series of events. And, and the market's responding to what is likely to be a severe markdown in growth estimates for 2020 and a very severe markdown in corporate profits. And it's had to immediately reprice as this coronavirus has intensified. And, and part of the problem, too, is that we have not yet had an adequate health care policy response in the United States. We haven't seen the government yet agree on a measure, set of measures that will support the economy. Now, the Federal Reserve came in this week and added in excess of a trillion dollars of liquidity to the markets because we saw earlier in the week a wholesale selling of almost every asset that you could find. People were selling treasury bonds, they were selling municipal bonds, in addition to stocks, gold, and oil. And when that happens, when you get that kind of panic, and I, and I would argue that uh, Wednesday and Thursday probably constitute a crash in stock prices down about 16% in two days, that you need some sort of intervention to, to save the system. And, and the system's not in jeopardy like it was in 2008, but we're starting to see some strains, particularly in the credit markets, that, that could cause further problems for the financial system itself down the road. We're talking to CNBC contributor Ron Insana here on iHeartRadio. Why are we seeing the market down quadruple digits one day, but then sometimes it finishes up quite a bit the next day, this yo-yo effect we've seen? Well, it, it's pretty obvious now that we, having fallen about 26% from its most recent all-time high, that the market's in what they call bear phase. This is a bear market. And just like in, in a roaring bull market, you get corrections that are short, sharp, and scary. In bear markets, you get rebounds uh, that they like to call, in a rather ghoulish term, but a rip-your-face-off rally. You get <laughs> that doesn't sound good. You get maybe one, uh, you know, one piece of good news, and suddenly everybody's been short the market. Yeah. They have to cover. Market snaps back right in your face, and, and it takes everybody by surprise. And, and it's really more of a selling opportunity than it is anything else, just as corrections in an ongoing bull market are buying opportunities. We're, we're certainly not in that mode right now. And, and again, and, and unless or until we see... What, what, what do you want to call them? Manhattan Project, Marshall Plan, kitchen sink response to these sets of problems we're facing right now. It, it's unlikely that the market will fully stabilize. We've done financial crises before. We know how to do that. What we don't know really is how to deal with an external shock like this. And, and everyone's hoping that medical experts and, and scientists and others would, would have their hands on the wheel and would be unimpeded by the administration in designing a set of protocols that would, would deal with this problem adequately and quickly. So not only would it minimize the human toll, but it would also minimize the economic toll that it's likely to take over the next three to six months. For those who have investments in the market and are wondering what to do with all of this volatility, what would you tell them? Well, as, as we and some of my colleagues at CNBC often say, panic is not a strategy. Um, and, and here's where it comes down to the length of time uh, that you have to be invested. If, if you're 
10 or 20 years or 15, 10, 15, 20 years or longer away from retirement, there is nothing to do. Um, you just kind of ride this out. You want to make sure that you own high quality companies or that you own high quality bonds if those are in your portfolio, high quality assets of any kind. Um, and, and then you ride out the storm. If you have anything that is questionable, it's probably a good time to just jettison that stuff. Maybe a little late, but again, this this could get worse before it gets better. Uh, but typically, financial advisors tell their clients is that if you have short-term money in the market that's going towards a you know down payment on a house or immediate turn, uh, needs for a child's education, it never should have been there in the first place. So that money just gets stripped out of the market and put aside, even if you have to take now a twenty percent loss. But again, and you know, there's no period in history in which the market hasn't been higher 10 years later than it is today. There's one, actually, 1929 to 1954, uh, from the crash of 29, the Dow peaked in September of that year at 381. It plunged 90% into July of 1932, and it plunged to 41, which is the price at which it opened in 1896. We did not see 381 again until 1954. So there was one 25-year period in American history where it took that long to go from the all-time high in 29 to recapture that level uh, in 1954. That's the only time in history that's been true. Now, had you bought anywhere along the way throughout the decline, you would have done fine if you had the money. I and mean, this was during the Great Depression. But, but again, if you have a long-term time horizon, and particularly if you're young, you should probably be throwing a fair amount of your money at the market now. Uh, it may go down further. But you'll be buying at discounted prices here. And as, as, as you, if you're in your 30s, uh, this is kind of where you step up and buy with both hands. That actually leads me to my final question. And again, we're talking to CNBC contributor Ron Insana right here on iHeartRadio. Are there financial opportunities that people could take advantage of at the moment? There probably are. But this is one of those environments where there's no need to rush. I mean, if you're trying to catch the bottom tick in a falling market, professionals aren't even good enough to do that. So yeah, I mean, you may want to sharpen your pencils, you may want to take out a pad of paper and look at companies that you love, um, that have long term prospects, very solid balance sheets that are going to eventually recover from this sell off, and be prepared to buy. But if you don't catch the first 5% of the rebound, or we have, you know, kind of a double dip in the market, there is no rush. You can start adding little bits of money to those companies and average in, as we like to say. You don't take, if you had $100,000, for instance, you don't put it all in tomorrow. You might put in $8,000 a month over the course of a year in order to kind of smooth out the price at which you purchase the stocks you like or the indexes or ETFs that you like. So no rush. Take your time. Quality is key. That's both in, in, in terms of the stock market and in terms of the bond market. You should know what you own at all times. And um, no reason to, to, to just go headlong into this. I suspect this volatility may go on for a time yet until we know more about the spread of the coronavirus, uh, we, until we know more about the human toll and the economic impact. I, I, it, it seems unlikely that we're quite out of the woods yet. So no rush to buy, but you can 
nibble over time, which would probably be a strategy for those people who are trying to pick up some bargains in the wake of what has been a, a pretty pronounced uh, decline in stocks. This, the decline on Thursday of, of 10% was the biggest single-day percentage decline we've seen since the 1987 crash. CNBC contributor Ron Insana. Ron, thank you so much for your time and expertise. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. A big thanks to all of our guests and, of course, to all of you for listening to Coronavirus Explained. I'm Ryan Gorman on iHeartRadio. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.